Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation, to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Gold plunged by almost $50 an ounce on Friday, and that followed a $30 an ounce decline the previous day on Thursday. Gold settled the week at about $1,864 an ounce. Now, when I recorded my last podcast on Wednesday following the close of the market, gold settled at better than $1,950 an ounce. In fact, gold was having its best start to a year since 2012. Now, with this $80 two-day decline, gold is still positive on the year, but it lost about two-thirds of its gains over those two days. So better than 30 days to go up, and in two days, two-thirds of that advance is wiped out. Now, this is typical trading in a bull market, because whenever you're in a bull market, It's the down moves that are more violent, that are larger, and they happen to shake people out. It's not just that some people are taking profits, but other people are shaken out of the market. They get scared out by the big drop and they think, okay, the move is over. I better get out. And they clear out a lot of the excess baggage and that paves the way for a move to new highs, which is what I think is going to happen with gold. Now, there were some catalysts that triggered the big two-day sell-off, starting with the huge risk-on day that we had on Thursday. In fact, I'm not sure when I've seen a bigger risk-on day than the one we saw on Thursday. And what I mean by risk-on, it's where investors buy the riskiest assets and they sell the safe haven assets. So, Gold is a safe haven. And so if it is a risk on day, then you're selling your gold in order to put the risk on. And the risk that you're putting on 
is you're buying tech stocks or cryptocurrencies or things like that. And in fact, if you look at the stocks that rallied the most on Thursday, those were the most overvalued tech companies, the ones that it had fallen the most last year. But despite that decline, still remain the most overvalued stocks in the market. Those are the ones that enjoyed the biggest percentage gains on Thursday. Some of these stocks were up 10, 20% in one day on no news. In fact, the only real news that came out, and I mentioned this on my podcast on Wednesday, was that after the bell, Meta, formerly Facebook, announced a $50 billion share buyback, and that stock was up better than 20%, I think almost 30% at one point on the day following the news of that buyback, which really outshined any of the earnings news that was reported. But that's really it for the fundamentals. Now, there was some news that came out of central banks. We had both the European Central Bank and the Bank of England raising rates by 50 basis points as expected on Thursday. The ECB moved up from 25 to 3%. And the Bank of England from three and a half to four percent. The European Central Bank did indicate another 50 basis points is likely at the next meeting, but really didn't mention anything about what might happen after that. The Bank of England was even more dovish, not giving any indication of additional rate hikes coming. Maybe they're coming, but they didn't talk about it. What they did talk about was the tide turning on the inflation front. And so I think the general perception out of these rate hikes was one of a dovish hike that, again, the Europeans are also getting close to ending the rate hikes, and they're seeing a victory on inflation. And this also might have sparked the risk-on move into these tech stocks and the sell-off in the price of gold. But after the bell, we got earnings from Apple, from Alphabet, that's Google, and from Amazon. And all three missed. These were bad earnings reports. They missed on the top line. They missed on the bottom line. They guided lower. All these stocks went down. All these stocks traded lower in the aftermarket. However, only Apple was able to reverse those losses and close positive by about 2.4% on Friday. But Alphabet was down 3.5% and Amazon got clobbered by 8.5%. So the entire tech market rally was not based on an improvement in the fundamentals for any of these tech companies. It was just based on a risk on appetite and, of course, a lot of short covering. There are a lot of shorts in these stocks, and I think a lot of the buying on Thursday was the result of short covering. In fact, I think there's a lot of short covering that is the reason that we had the big rally in tech stocks in January. The rise in the NASDAQ in January was its best January since 2001. And in fact, the January gain in the NASDAQ was the biggest gain in any month since July of 2022. Now, we did get the release of other economic news on Thursday that might have helped inspire the rally in risk assets. Early in the morning, we got the Challenger job cut report. And this was a pretty big number. The prior number for December reported 43,651 announced layoffs. Well, the January 2023 number was more than twice that at 102,943. 
Now, this may have helped the market because if there's more job losses, then the Fed is likely to be less aggressive with its rate hikes. We also got weaker than expected news on December factory orders. They were supposed to rise by 2.2%. Instead, they only rose by 1.8%. And in fact, the 1.8% decline in November was revised to a slightly larger 1.9% decline. But all the economic news on Thursday wasn't weaker than expected. We got a stronger than expected weekly jobless claims number. They were looking for 193,000 first-time jobless claims. That would have been an increase over the 186,000 in the prior week. Instead, the number dropped down to 183,000. So instead of a 7,000 claim rise, we got a 3,000 claim decline. Also, the productivity and cost numbers were also better than expected. We got a preliminary look at Q4 productivity and cost. The expectations was for a rise of 2.4%, and the actual rise, at least so far, was up 3%. And there was a revision to the prior quarter, which was at 0.8, and that was revised to up one4 and unit labor costs were lower than expected. Now, that would be good news for people who are looking for labor to be a driver of inflation. The consensus was for an increase of 1.5%, and instead the increase was just 1.1%. And again, the increase in unit labor costs from the prior quarter, which was previously reported at up 2.4%, was revised down to up 2%. So this would be a positive on inflation coming down, because if you have increased productivity, you're going to bring down the cost of goods. So while this data didn't point to a weaker economy, it does suggest less inflation, at least in the minds of investors. And that report, too, might have helped fuel the rally in risk-on stocks on Thursday. But the bombshell that blew up the gold market on Friday was the much stronger than expected non-farm payroll report for January released by the Labor Department early in the morning. The expectation was for a gain of 185,000 jobs, and that would have been a decline from the 223,000 jobs originally reported for December. Well, the December number was revised higher from 223 to 260. But the real shocker was the 517,000 jobs gained during January. Now, that blew away expectations. In fact, the range of estimates went from a low of 150,000 up to a high of 260,000. So basically double expectations. Now, there were a lot of factors that might have influenced these numbers. And so Potentially, this could be a real outlier as this big number may be more a function of seasonal adjustments rather than what's actually happening in the labor market. But it wasn't just the number of jobs created that spooked the markets. It was also the drop in the unemployment rate, which was expected to rise from 3.5% in December to 3.6% in January. Instead, it fell. The unemployment rate dropped to 3.4%. This is a new low for the cycle. In fact, the last time the unemployment rate was this low was 1969. Now, of course, we didn't measure the unemployment rate 
back in the 1960s the same way we measure it now. So if it was an apples to apples comparison, today's rate would be much higher than the 1969 rate. But as far as the markets are concerned that just take government numbers at face value, this is the lowest unemployment rate since the 60s. Obviously, it's a lower rate than anything that was achieved during the Donald Trump administration. Hopefully, this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Now, the driver behind all these gains, once again, was leisure and hospitality. That's where we got the most gains. 443,000 job gains in total in the private sector versus an estimate of 170,000 gains. Manufacturing was still bigger than expected. We only got 19,000 manufacturing jobs, but still, it was more than triple the 5,000 that was expected. And even the 8,000 increase from the prior month was revised to 12,000. Labor force participation rate also notched up from 62.3 to 62.4. So, according to this report, more workers entered the labor market, but most of them found jobs. That's why the unemployment rate went down. And you got 517,000 new jobs. Average hourly earnings met expectations, so no real bad news there. They were expected to rise by 0.3, and they did rise by 0.3, although average hourly earnings for the previous month were revised upwards slightly from a 0.3% gain to a 0.4% gain. The year-over-year increase, though, in average hourly earnings, as expected, at 4.4, even though they revised upward, December from up 4.6 to up 4.9, but we did get a big pickup in hours work. That moved up to 34.7 versus 34.4 for the prior week, which actually was a slightly upward revision, but more people working, more hours, more income. This was seen as a strong report on the economy and good news on the economy is bad news for the market. Stocks went down as a result of this report, although the impact on gold seemed to be even more dramatic. And I think one of the reasons for that is that this report itself is getting a lot of people to think that maybe we will have a soft landing after all, and maybe the Fed could get rid of inflation without destroying the labor market or the economy. After all, so many people now believe that the Fed has made significant progress in its goal of returning inflation to 2%, yet that progress has not come at the expense of jobs. It has not come at the expense of an increase in the unemployment rate. In fact, unemployment is now hitting new lows, even as the Fed continues to raise interest rates to bring down the rate of inflation. 
So more investors were thinking that maybe the Fed could pull off this miracle. Maybe we can get rid of inflation and still have a strong economy, not have a big increase in unemployment. And of course, the other thing that everybody believes is that as soon as the Fed gets rid of inflation, that's when the Fed can immediately start cutting interest rates and get them back down to lower levels. Nobody seems to understand that even if the Fed is successful in bringing inflation back down to 2%, which it will not be, but even if it were able to do that, that does not mean the Fed can take interest rates back down to zero or anywhere close to zero. In fact, even if inflation is around 2%, the appropriate interest rate under normal circumstances with a 2% inflation rate is probably at least a 4% Fed funds rate. It's not a Fed funds rate that's anywhere near where it was in previous years. That was the aberration. We can't go back to those artificially low interest rates. And if the Fed even attempted to return to those rates, then any progress on inflation would immediately be lost. You see, what the markets don't get is that even if inflation goes down to 2%, it won't stay at 2% if the Fed cuts rates. The Fed has to raise rates and then keep them there. Only if they raise rates significantly above neutrality would they have the ability to return rates to a neutral level. But I don't even think we've gotten there yet. In fact, if you look at what the actual inflation rate is, the current rate is still stimulative. We haven't even reached neutral. But if we were able to restore inflation to 2% with a 5% Fed funds rate, there isn't much room for the Fed to cut in the aftermath of its victory. But of course, what the markets still don't get is all of this improvement in inflation is transitory. We are going to see a increase in the inflation rate before the end of the year. The progress that the Fed believes it's made is going to be lost. And the numbers are going to be headed decisively back up, and the Fed is going to be moving further away from its 2% inflation goal. But interest rates will be higher by then because the Fed is still going to raise interest rates, maybe another 25 or another 50 basis points. So we're talking about a 5% Fed's funds rate. But when the Fed funds rate gets up to 5% and the inflation numbers start to get worse, the markets are in for a real shock. And so is the Fed because that means that the Fed has to raise rates a lot more. Because if 5% didn't have the desired effect, then maybe we need 7% or 8%. And what is that going to do to the markets? In fact, 5% is already more damage than the markets and the economy can bear. You see, a lot of people are looking at these rate hikes, and then they're looking at the economy, and they're saying, oh, well, I guess the economy can withstand the higher rates. Higher rates haven't been there long enough for the full impact to be felt by the economy. All that is going to happen. It just takes a little bit more time. Yet investors are jumping to the wrong conclusion that just because we haven't seen a big problem as a consequence of this substantial increase in interest rates. Remember, a year ago, rates were at zero, right? And now here we are, 4.5%, and mortgage rates, which were barely over 3% or more than 6%. So we've had this big increase in borrowing costs for a highly levered economy. We've got this $31.5 trillion national debt, all this short-term paper 
where the government originally borrowed money at practically zero, maybe 25 basis points, all those notes are maturing and the government's having to roll it over at, let's say, 450 basis points. This is a huge increase in the cost of funding the U.S. budget deficits. So all of this is going to take its toll on the economy, going to take its toll on consumer spending, on corporate earnings. It's just going to take more time for the full impact to be felt. Meanwhile, investors are jumping to the wrong conclusion that because they haven't seen that full impact yet, that what they've seen is it. Well, they've barely seen anything because you can't take this highly levered economy and then go from such low interest rates to where we are now, even though they're not high in historic perspective, they're extremely high compared to where they once were and where they remain for about a decade. And so we're already going to see a major economic fallout from the moves that we've seen thus far. But if inflation doesn't come down, if inflation keeps going up, and that indicates that the moves thus far are inadequate to do the job, and the rate hikes have to be even bigger, that's an even bigger problem for the markets. And what I think is going to compound the problem is that by the end of the year, and probably around the same time that the markets are having to come to terms with the fact that the progress made against inflation has been lost and inflation is getting higher, not lower, we're going to see the labor market roll over. And instead of seeing big job gains, we're going to see big job losses. But if you look beneath the surface of these big job gains, which nobody in the mainstream seems to be willing to do, it's an entirely different picture. Because if you look at these jobs, going back to March of 2022, so 10 months ago, during that time period, despite all of these job gains, there are fewer people who have full-time jobs today than who had full-time jobs 10 months ago. Alternatively, during the same 10 months, you have almost 1.5 million people who now have part-time jobs that didn't have part-time jobs before. Now, what this means is that net all of the jobs that have been created over the last 10 months are part-time. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't created any full-time jobs during those 10 months, but the full-time jobs that have been created have not been enough to offset the number of full-time jobs that have been lost. What has picked up the slack for the loss of full-time jobs is the surge in part-time jobs. Now, some of these part-time jobs went to people who didn't have any jobs, and now they're working part-time, whereas previously they weren't working at all. But I think most of the part-time jobs went to people who already had jobs. Either they already had one or two part-time jobs, and they picked up another part-time job, or maybe they were working a full-time job but that full-time job was not enough to make ends meet, so they had to go and get a part-time job. Or maybe you have some people who were retired and really didn't want to work at all, but now, because the cost of living has gone up so much thanks to inflation, they no longer have the luxury of not working, so they have to take a part-time job to try to pick up the slack and make ends meet. Now, this is not a sign of a strong economy or even of a strong labor market. The fact that so many people have to moonlight, that so many people are working multiple jobs when they'd prefer to work fewer jobs is not a sign of strength. It's a sign of weakness. Yes, I suppose it's a good thing 
that those jobs are available for people who unfortunately need them. But again, most of these jobs are low paying. People who are taking second and third jobs, by and large, they're not getting good jobs. They're just getting any job they can take. They're getting lower paid service sector jobs, but they have no choice. That's all that's available. That's all they're qualified for. And they need the money. But what's really going to complicate the situation is when those jobs are no longer there, when people who need second and third jobs can't find them. That is going to happen as the economy gets even weaker, as inflation gets even stronger. But in the meantime, the fact that we're creating all of these low-paying part-time jobs, many of them for people who are already employed, is not a strong sign. Most people prefer leisure. Most people just want one good full-time job, and that's it. Most people don't want to work at all. One of the reasons that people look forward to retirement is because they don't have to work anymore. They don't want to get old, but one of the benefits of being old is that you could stop working and you have more time to enjoy your life. If people just enjoyed working, then nobody would look forward to retirement. They would just keep on working until they were physically unable to do it. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, the jobs data wasn't the only economic data weighing on the gold market on Friday. We also got a stronger than expected January ISM Services Index. It was supposed to come out at 50.4, and that would have been an improvement over the 49.6 for December. That number was actually revised down a bit to 49.2, but the January number came out at 55.2, much stronger than expected. In fact, the range of expectations went from a low of 49 to a high of 51. So many handles above the 51 top end of the estimate. So that also helped push the gold price down because this spooked the markets into thinking that we have a stronger service sector. Maybe we're going to have stronger price increases in the service sector. And therefore, maybe inflation isn't as dead as we thought. And the Fed is going to have to fight a little harder to kill it. And so that was bad for gold. It was also bad for stocks. Investors seem to shrug off the conflicting report coming from the PMI. The final composite for January came out at 46.8, with the service index also at 46.8. Again, anything below 50 indicates contraction. So we're still getting weakness in the PMI, even if we got some strength in the ISM. But in this case, investors looked at the glass as being half full or I guess half empty, depending on your perspective now, because good news is seen as bad news. But on a day headlined by strong jobs data, the markets tend to look at the strong data and ignore the weaker data. But ultimately, I think that the economy is going to prove to be far weaker than anybody thinks. I think the labor market is going to prove to be far weaker. It's only inflation that is going to prove to be stronger. And this temporary improvement 
in the inflation rate. What Jerome Powell is now calling disinflation, this is what's going to prove to be transitory. As far as the impact on the financial markets, I still expect the strength that we saw in equities, particularly the riskiest type stocks, tech stocks, the Kathy Woods Arc Innovation type stocks, I still expect a complete reversal and all of the January gains to be surrendered. I think gold is going to make new highs. It may not make them immediately. We did have a pretty sharp decline over the last two days. I don't think it's going to be reversed as quickly, but I think before the end of this quarter, in fact, maybe even before the end of the month of February, we will hit a new high in the price of gold. In the meantime, we've just got another buying opportunity for those of you who don't have positions to take one and for those who have positions that are too small to add to them, whether it's positions in the physical metals or in the mining stocks. If you're looking to acquire physical metals, the best place, of course, is Shift Gold. That's where you're going to get the best deal on bullion bars and coins. You're not going to be bait and switched into numismatics or any other collectible so-called rare coin where you're going to be paying huge premiums over the spot price of gold or silver. You're going to get the biggest bang for your buck possible by buying gold and silver as close to the spot price as you can while still getting reputable coins or bars. And if you want to be more aggressive, if you want to make a leverage bet on a rise in gold and silver and you're willing to assume the added risk, then you want to look into gold stocks. Then you want to look at either opening up a managed account with your Pacific Asset Management, where we have individual accounts that are managed and focused specifically in the precious metals mining sector. Or alternatively, you can simply invest in the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund. You can buy that fund through your Euro-Pacific representative or at any major discount brokerage house where you might already have an account. But I want to change gears and talk about three shootings that were in the news this week. Two of the shootings involve the police. One does not. And one of them I already discussed in a prior podcast, and that is the fatal shooting of Tyree Nichols. He is the African-American male who died three days after being severely beaten by five African-American policemen who had arrested him based on suspicion of reckless driving. And I was listening to a interview with Benjamin Crump, who is now the attorney representing the family. And Benjamin Crump is a high-profile guy. He's the one that represented the Trayvon Martin family and the Michael Brown family. So now he has got himself involved in this situation, obviously. His mother, relatives are looking to cash in on this tragedy and make a big paycheck. And that's why Crump is involved. But in this interview, Crump was still trying to use this as an example of racism, that the cops were racist. You might stop and pause for a moment and think, how exactly is he doing this when all the cops involved are black? So how is it about race when everybody involved is black, including the chief of police. I mentioned that on my last podcast. But the way Benjamin Crump explained it is that when it comes to racism in the police force, it doesn't matter what race the police officer is. He could be white, he could be black, he could be Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter. All that matters is the race of the citizen, the person who they are trying to arrest. If that person is black, then he's going to be treated differently by the police. Even if the police are black, then those black policemen would treat 
a white person, for example. Now, I don't know that there's any actual evidence that is the case, but if it is the case, it's not racism. There'd be some other factor that would explain it, but it certainly wouldn't be racism. If you look at the initial encounter with Tyree Nichols, look at how the police approach the situation from the beginning, and you compare that to the way the officers originally confronted George Floyd, it's night and day. The white officer that originally confronted George Floyd, and George Floyd was in his car, he did not drag George Floyd out of his car. He asked him to step out of the car. He may have assisted him in getting out of the car, but he didn't violently pull him out of the car, and he didn't throw him to the ground. George Floyd was handcuffed while he was still standing up. Now, it took a while to cuff him, because George Floyd wasn't cooperating with the very clear instructions that he was being given by the arresting officer. Now, again, the guy wasn't super polite. He was using the F word and stuff, but he was clearly frustrated that George Floyd wasn't cooperating. And it may have even been frustrating to George Floyd, because if again, if you look at that footage, I don't even know that George Floyd realized that he wasn't cooperating, because I think he had so much drugs in his system that he was too high to understand what he was supposed to do, and he didn't even realize that he wasn't doing it. But he wasn't being physically abused in any way by the officer who eventually walked him to a wall. He sat down and leaned up against the wall. He wasn't pushed. He wasn't kicked. And then he got up and he was walked to the squad car. They tried to get him in the squad car. The only reason they were pushing him to get in the squad car is because they asked him to get in and he didn't get in. And so they're trying to force him to get in. But George Floyd is complaining that he's claustrophobic, that he can't breathe. He doesn't want to be in the squad car and ultimately causes himself to go to the ground. He says, put me on the ground. I want to be on the ground. And that's how he ended up there. It wasn't that he was thrown to the ground by the police. He chose to be on the ground. But if you look at the way the officers approach Tyree Nichols, the minute they get to his car, they're dragging him out and throwing him on the ground, get on the ground, pull him out of his car. It's very violent. It's a very different situation. And again, this guy is just suspected of reckless driving. It's not like wanted for murder or something, but they're very violent in the way they're treating him. And maybe from their perspective, this guy is resisting arrest. But if you actually look at it, it seems like he's trying to cooperate. It's just that these policemen are not really making it clear what they want. They're screaming stuff at him and shoving him. And when he gets a chance to run away, which obviously infuriated the officers, and I talk about that, but one of the reasons that he may have ran, not so much that he was trying to flee to resist arrest, he was afraid of these cops. It's certainly possible that this guy just wanted to get away from these officers. It wasn't so much that he was fleeing justice. He was scared of what these officers might do to him. And obviously, he was correct to be scared because look what ended up happening. But the point is, the officers aren't acting this way because the department somehow indoctrinated them into this idea that they have to treat black suspects differently than they would treat white suspects. Like if they had pulled over this guy and when they opened up the door, they noticed that he was white, they would have treated him differently. They probably would have treated him the same way. It's more likely because of their own upbringing before they even made it to the police force. These men probably grew up in very violent situations. They were probably raised in homes with a single mother, no father around, which is not an ideal environment for a boy to grow up. 
some of these guys may in fact have been gangbangers themselves before they joined the police force. And they probably still carry those scars into their profession because when you look at it, it seems like they are treating this suspect like a rival gang member. And the problem here is that maybe some of these guys shouldn't have been hired or to the extent that they were hired, they needed a lot more training before put on the street or they needed to be supervised by somebody who had a lot more training. But the one thing that's clear is that racism has absolutely nothing to do with it. What I do think plays a role is affirmative action at the police force when it comes to hiring. I think the social welfare state and the war on drugs from the federal government, all of this helped create the violent environment in which these police officers grew up in. But the reason that this case is not going to create anywhere near the national outrage that you had with George Floyd, even though in this case, the police were far more aggressive and far more at fault and did far more wrong than the police did with respect to George Floyd, is that these police officers are of the wrong race. They're not white. And that's where the racism is. It's not in the police departments. It's in the media. But not only is the media biased against whites in always assuming that they're acting out of racism, but they're also biased against the police. They just want to assume that in all circumstances, the police are bad. And so whenever there's a story about somebody who is killed by police, they want to jump to the conclusion that it was the police that were at fault and the person they shot was just some innocent guy and it's just police brutality. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen because clearly the police were very brutal in the Tyree Nichols case, but that is the exception. That is not the rule. In fact, this week we got another example of biased media coverage of the police when somebody dies. This is an incident that took place in Huntington Park, California. The individual who died is Anthony Lowe. He's a 36-year-old black man. And what's very unique about this story is that he's a double amputee. He lost both of his legs from the knee down, and he is in a wheelchair, and he was shot to death by police. And when you read the stories, the stories all say he was shot by the police while he was trying to get away, while he was running away. The implications were that the police had no reason to shoot this guy because, after all, he wasn't a threat. He was just running away. But when you actually look at all the circumstances, it's really not that cut and dry and I think that we need to get the full story before you jump to any conclusions about these police. So first of all, the reason the police were trying to arrest this guy was because earlier he had stabbed somebody in the chest with a 12-inch butcher knife. The person he stabbed is Hispanic. And I only found out about the victim by doing a lot of research because there's really very little coverage of the guy that Lowe stabbed. But I found out this guy, and I don't know his full name because the stories I read just identify him as Ramiro. I don't even know if that's his first name or his last name. He is a warehouse worker. He's a father of four, and he didn't even know Anthony Lowe. He just said that Anthony Lowe pushed himself out of his wheelchair and then came running up on his knees and shoved the knife into his side just below his armpit, puncturing his lung. And the guy almost died. He was in surgery for four hours. He's still in a hospital recovering from that surgery. 
In fact, he credits a Huntington Park police officer for saving his life because he applied pressure to the wound and was there reassuring him that he would be okay while they were waiting for an ambulance. And so here's a situation where you had a police officer that saved a guy's life. Nobody really wants to spend a lot of time talking about the officer that saved somebody's life. They're more concerned about these officers who took somebody else's life. But remember, the life they took was the guy who attempted to murder the other guy. Anthony Lowe was an attempted murderer, and he may, in fact, have been a murderer had the guy he tried to kill had died. But he didn't die because the police and then the doctors saved his life, and that's what prevented Anthony Lowe from being a murderer. But he certainly intended to kill this guy based on how he stabbed him. Now, what his motivation for killing a complete stranger was, we'll never know because he's now dead. But what he did was a very bad thing. And when you listen to the mother, and clearly I always sympathize with a parent when they lose a child and she's talking about her sweet boy. But when you listen to that, you have to keep it in perspective that her sweet boy tried to murder somebody. So he's not so sweet. Meanwhile, the reason he had lost both of his legs had to do with another altercation with police in Texas. Obviously, this guy is a repeat criminal, so he's not a choir boy. That doesn't justify the police shooting him. But other things that he did that day may in fact have justified the shooting. So remember, the police get a call that someone in a wheelchair just stabbed somebody and the person they stabbed may in fact die. So they respond to the call and they see somebody matching the description, a guy in a wheelchair with a big knife. How many people in wheelchairs are rolling around with big knives? So they pretty much know they got the guy and they're trying to arrest him and he runs away. But he's not just running away the way the media describes it. He is running away brandishing a 12-inch butcher knife, which he already stabbed one person with and may, in fact, use it to stab another person and is also threatening, both in words and action, to throw the knife at the officers who are chasing him. Obviously, he's not going very fast because he's running on his knees, but he's got a pretty good pace, like a brisk walk. And the police are trying to stop the guy because he's still got a knife in his hand. He hasn't dropped the knife. He's already stabbed one person. I mean, maybe he'll stab somebody else if he doesn't stab the policeman, but they're ordering him to stop and drop the knife. He's not doing it. He continues to run. They tried to shoot him twice with tasers to incapacitate him. Apparently, it didn't work. I don't know why. And then a couple of times, he motioned like he was going to throw his knife. And apparently, according to the officers, he threatened to throw the knife at the police. Now, at that point, the police have to make a decision. What are they going to do? Are they going to let this guy run away and potentially stab somebody else? Or are they going to let him throw the knife and hope he misses or maybe that they could dodge the knife? If I was a policeman and some guy was threatening to throw a knife at me, I think I might shoot him. I'm not going to wait for him to throw the knife and just assume I could dodge it or he's a bad throw. I already know he stabbed one person. I don't want the second person to be me. And so these policemen have to make a decision. And so they end up shooting him. And maybe the reason they shot him multiple times is even after he was shot once or twice, he still didn't drop that knife. And so all of this coverage is of the mistakes the police made. None of the coverage is of the mistake the guy made, the mistake of attempting to murder somebody in the first place, the mistake of resisting arrest, the mistake of not dropping a deadly weapon. A knife is no match for a gun, assuming the people who have the guns use them. Because a knife is a deadly weapon. You can kill somebody with a knife. That's why the policeman ordered him to drop the knife.
But if he doesn't drop that knife, which is already a potential murder weapon, the police have to think fast and make a quick decision. He clearly should have dropped that knife. Now, he also shouldn't have run away either. He should have allowed himself to be arrested by the police. But I'm sure that even if he made the decision to drop the knife and he kept on running, the police wouldn't have shot him. Now, he probably wouldn't have gotten away because, after all, the police could run him down, but he wouldn't have been shot. He was shot because he didn't drop the knife. Whose fault is that? Is that the police fault for shooting him or is it his fault for not dropping the knife? There's an old expression, you don't take a knife to a gunfight, especially when the gunfight involves two policemen who both have guns. You drop your knife. He didn't do it. So again, even if the police end up being at fault, even if they shouldn't have fired, if there was some other way to apprehend this guy, that doesn't absolve him from the responsibility of what happened and the consequences of his actions, including attempted murder. And finally, to illustrate the hypocrisy of the media when it comes to issues of race, there was a violent murder that took place during the week as well. Also in California, this was in Dana Point. I know that area very well myself. I used to live in Newport Beach. In fact, I kept a boat in the Dana Point Marina. The incident involved a cyclist who was hit by a car and died. But he didn't die as a result of being hit by a car. He died because the guy who was driving the car got out of the car after he ran into the cyclist, and while he was still laying on the ground, violently stabbed him to death. The guy riding the bike was a 58-year-old doctor. He worked in the trauma department in an emergency room, so he was a good guy. This is not a career criminal. This is somebody whose career is saving people's lives, including the lives of criminals. And he was bicycling to work to save more lives when he was hit by a car and then stabbed to death by the driver. The doctor happened to be white, and the guy driving the car who violently murdered him happens to be black. His name is Van Roy Evan Smith, and he's 39 years old, and he is already in custody. The name of the doctor that he murdered is Michael Mammon. The final twist of this murder is that a bystander reported that while Smith was stabbing Mammon to death, he was saying something about white privilege. So in other words, according to an eyewitness, there was a racial element of this murder, which would make it a hate crime. Now, from my perspective, to me, it doesn't matter whether or not this guy murdered this doctor because he hates white people or just because he hates doctors or he hates bicyclists, whatever. I don't care. Murder is murder. It's just as bad. And the penalty should be the same in all circumstances. I don't think we need to be the thought police and try to get into this guy's head. And if for some reason he was motivated by race rather than some other irrelevant motivation, that somehow it's a more heinous crime deserving of an even bigger punishment, it's the same crime. It's murder. It's already heinous. We don't need to try to make it any worse by interjecting racism. But my point is, this story was not covered at all in the national news. It was covered locally in the Orange County area because it was a story there. But it didn't make CBS, NBC, ABC. I don't, I don't know if CNN mentioned it. I didn't hear about it there. 
I stumbled across it because somebody told me to look for it. And then I found it on the internet and was able to read up on it. But imagine if the races had been reversed. What if the doctor riding the bicycle happened to be black and the guy driving the car was white? And if witnesses reported that as this white guy was violently murdering the black cyclist he had just hit, he was saying racial slurs. In other words, it was a hate crime. It was a white racist who violently murdered this black doctor. It would be all over the national news. I mean, Joe Biden would have gone down there. He'd be with the grieving family talking about how this is an example of racism in America, blaming it on Donald Trump or whatever, systemic racism. It would be a huge story. But because the race of the murderer and the victim don't fit the narrative because you have a black murderer and a white victim, even though there is some evidence that it may have been a racially motivated murder, crickets, it's not a story because it's not the story the media wants to tell. They are looking for examples of whites killing blacks. And whenever they find one, it becomes a huge national story. And even if they don't really find one, they'll make one up like they did with the case of George Zimmerman by turning him into a white Hispanic and then by accusing him of murdering an African-American child. And all of this biased, one-sided coverage creates the false impression that it's open season on African-Americans. And you have all kinds of racists, policemen, non-policemen, killing black people because those are the stories that are in the news. When there are plenty of examples of blacks killing whites or blacks killing blacks that don't make the news, when the only killings that make the news are whites killing blacks, then it creates a biased perception that this is what's going on. But it's not what's going on. This is what the media wants people to think is going on so they can advance their own agenda. And in order to advance that agenda, they need to create the impression that we have a systemic racist problem in America. And the reason they want to blame so many problems in the African-American community on racism is so they can deflect away from the real reason that you have these problems. And it's not racism, it's government. It's the welfare state, it's the war on drugs, it's all sorts of government rules and regulations, some of them well-intentioned, but all of them that have backfired and that have created this problem. But of course, the politicians don't want to level with the African-American community and tell them the real source of the problem, if they even understand it. They want African-Americans to feel like they're victims and that the only chance they have of succeeding in this racist society is by voting for these politicians who are going to protect them from this racist threat that they have ginned up simply to get African-American voters to repeatedly return them to office. And the last thing they want is these African-Americans to achieve success on their own. Because once they're successful and self-sufficient, they no longer need government and may end up voting Republican or Libertarian. 